Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. This beautiful Thursday morning. Uh, this is Thanksgiving morning in Washington, D.C., all over the U.S. We're celebrating the things that we have to be thankful for this day. You know, even in spite of COVID-19, the, the amount of racism in the U.S., climate change, poor economy, there's still a lot to be thankful for. Right now, we're looking at 262,266 deaths in the United States. Huge. More than the last four wars, the number of deaths. And a lot of them just did not have to be called for. And if you look in the black community, it's three times more likely to die. Three times more likely to die than white folks. So this is... Really, really bad out there for us. And I'm hoping this Thanksgiving that you all, everybody out there is staying home, staying close, not spreading this virus and having more deaths in our community. And just be thankful for what we got, including every breath. Sharing this thankfulness is Ron Hans, who's the board president of the Network for Development Conscious Communities. Conscious communities in this, if you will, unconscious world of deaths and problems and racism. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Vernon. So what do you got to be thankful for this morning, bro? Well, first of all, Vernon, um, you just outlined it, just being able to wake up this morning, being thankful for that, being thankful for family, being thankful that we've, you know, come to a point of change in leadership in this country. And Amen. hopefully that change in leadership is going to bring about the changes and corrections that we need to fight this pandemic that has been ravishing our country for the last nine months. And that pandemic that's been ravishing our country for the last 400 years, coming out of <laughs> yeah. slavery and the racism. And um, I don't know about you, but growing up in the 50s and 60s in the South and just experiencing that racism. That I, I can't tell you, Ron, in, in elementary school how many times I was called the N-word because we, we integrated uh, schools in 1955. I was in the third grade. So I can't tell you how many times. Matter of fact, I even thought I was called that so much that was my middle name or something, you know. <laughs> so there, there's a, there's a, that's a pandemic has been with us, particularly the black folks, and they they call it the post-traumatic slave syndrome. Generation on generation on generation of trauma brought on by the U.S. government, brought on by white folks, that's white privilege, and some of them are out and out racist and they know it, and some of them don't even know that they carry it on. Mm. And that's what makes it so sad in a systemic way. 
So what is this conscious community that you're talking about? You're, you're talking about um, developing conscious communities. What, what is that? Well, you know, for the last five years, uh, Vernon, since um, this organization has been formed, we've been working at elevating uh, what we feel is consciousness around the work around community development. We've seen years and years and years of, of some capital investment in black and brown communities. But what we've not focused on is what Dr. King talked about was the spiritual component of how we work to developing a sense of community. And that seems to have been missing throughout all the efforts that we've done academically and intellectually that we've not focused on spiritual work in our communities. And so about five years ago when when I decided to, to form this organization, I wanted to embed a platform for looking at spiritually how we are working together collectively to develop communities. And so I want to raise up that thought of awareness around connecting people to the work that's going on in their communities. And, um, and so I know this work, as I saw it, had to take on a principle-based practice where everything that we were doing and was envisioning in our community had to tie in a, a, a principle-based practice of connecting people to, to the activity. And so we've been on this journey for the last five years, sharing that principle work with others in the industry around that it has to be just more than bricks and mortars that communities are comprised of. We have to work on elevating the spirit and, and awareness and consciousness of folks so we can inspire people to want to get engaged and involved. And so if you talk about conscious community development, we're talking about awareness. We're talking about getting people awoke. We talk about an elevation of thought and, and creating new thought thinkers. Can you give me an example of that? Because I, I, I got a sense of it. Well, here's a part of it. You know, let's take the low-income housing tax credit program as an example. It's a wonderful program that was developed to increase the, the inventory of affordable housing by providing incentives for developers. But when you look at the way that program has been administered over the years, and a great majority of those projects or housing developments have been used to finance that program have been placed in low to moderate income neighborhoods. And so instead of creating diversity, income diversity in many neighborhoods, you embed neighborhoods again with the same type of platform that you're trying to work at getting out of. So if you talk about 40% home ownership in black America right now, I think it's 40 to 42% black home ownership, one of our activities should be about creating more wealth, more home ownership. Now, that doesn't say that there's not a need for rural housing, but let's prioritize ownership instead of rentalship in our communities. And so unconsciously, developers will because of the, the financing, will direct that kind of activity as a first pathway for housing in many black and brown communities as opposed to looking at home ownership because it's incentivized through that tax credit program. So that, is, to me, is a real example of, of what I call low-conscious community development, particularly when you talk about neighborhoods where home ownership is well below 40%. You 
increase home ownership because we know what the benefit home ownership brings in terms of community. It connects people, but also, too, it creates wealth, opportunities, and also it's a, it's a pathway for community engagement. People who are vested in communities will find themselves more engaged in the fabric of building community, more engaged in, in, the, in, in the work of building a sense of community among themselves versus those who may be transiting through communities. So that's one example of what I call unconscious community development. Um, hold on, hold on. Let me come back. Let me, let's talk about that one for a minute because you've got my attention here. And hopefully the people out there are listening also. So the consciousness, though, that you talk about, well, let me back all the way up. What I have it is, Ron, that in America you have, through Citizen United, you have rich folk, the Koch brothers, the Donald Trumps of the world, that buy politicians. So they will put all of this money in to get these politicians into the Senate, into the House, both local and national. And then those politicians, I used to be mad at them because I said they weren't for the people. But I realized they are for people, but they're for the rich people. They create policies for the rich folk, like the tax credit that you're talking about, who benefits from that financially are rich folk, not the people that gets the housing. And so the consciousness that you're talking about I thought you were talking about that the folks that would be living in those apartments would be conscious, awoke, and advocating. But the people that are creating the policies, the programs, are the wealthy people, and they are very conscious. They know exactly what they're doing. They're keeping us down. They're putting in place things like this tax credit that does not Matter of fact, it hinders home ownership, and it keeps people in apartments, keep us paying them, and they get all of this return for their money. They get tax write-offs, and then they get money for owning these these properties in terms of rent and and increase capital or increase the value of the property. So the consciousness is there on their part. How do we as black folks? How do we change our consciousness so we can change that program, that tax credit program? Well, I was I was alluding, Vernon, to the diversity. And, yes, consciousness is, 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 is operating all the time for all of us, whether you're rich, whether you're, whether you're poor. Now, the, the, the telling platform of consciousness as I see it, is how are you elevating oneself? So if you are a policy, if you are a citizen living in a, in a city that's undergoing stress, and economic stress, and so, and if you continue to, to go through those stressful moments without understanding why you're there and having the tools to move yourself out of a, one space into another, then you're operating at a low a low equilum of, 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 of understanding. And so think about it in terms of your uh, uh, automobile, when you need a tune-up. When you're operating at, at the highest level of, of, of efficiency in your automobile, you, you're able to accelerate the velocity of your car. But when your spark plug starts to wear down, 
and you start to operate at that low frequency or low velocity, then you're just trying to chug me along. So I'm, in my analogy, I'm, I, I want to just say that consciously we have to propel ourselves to operate at the optimum level, to which we have not been doing for a long time in black communities. An optimum so level, it means connecting all the connectors that we need to put in place to better propel ourselves as a community, as a people. And yes, those folks that you're speaking of, the Koch brothers and, and others, they're operating at their optimum level. They're operating at their optimum level. That's why they're able to influence policy decisions and put the resources to make sure that things benefit them as opposed to benefit the people that they are working against. So I, I'm in agreement with you. It's just a matter of how one is displaying their consciousness. So I really want to talk about this car example and this tune-up because I, I am getting what you're talking about here. And I'm hoping using that example, we can make sure that the people out there are listening and are getting it. We have to take our first break now. And when we come back, I want to talk about this consciousness because I have it that if I have a car that needs something, tune-up, and it's going around chugging along, and I stop at the stoplight, it's smoking, I put my foot on the gas, and it barely goes off, goes, it barely moves. So I, I get that, that, that vision. So we're going to talk, come back and talk about what one can do in consciousness and money and so forth to get to be working at optimum level. We'll be right back, everybody. Please don't touch that now. everybody, this is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and WL is a great partner, have been for seven years now, because information is power. So this morning, we have Mr. Ron Hans, who the board president of Network for Developing Conscious Communities, to give you information. If you take this information and do something with it, then that's where you get the power. And that's basically what we're talking about, being conscious, being awoke getting things done that benefits you, benefits our community. So the example we were talking about before we took break was you have a car. And I don't know about you, but I've had those cars where they needed a tune-up and they were just chuckling alone. They couldn't fire right. They couldn't move right. And, Ryan, what I want to get to is more often I'm aware that my car is not functioning. I just don't have the resources. I don't have the money to fix it. And I don't have the knowledge to go in and do a tune-up. I've got to buy the spark plugs. And there were some other things that my dad taught me, which I've forgotten. I have to buy these parts in order to do the tune-up, but I don't know how to do the tune-up. And I don't have the money to take it to the garage to get it tuned up. So I'm conscious that it's not working. What do you say? True. That's true. So what, you, what, you, what, you, what you're exemplifying, Bernie, is that you just don't have the tools needed to to increase the velocity of your vehicle. And that's similar to what I'm saying and what's being said about consciousness. There has to be some tools that one has to have in their toolkit to, to elevate that consciousness. So let me give, you, give some more examples to, to, okay. to, to your audience this, this morning. If you're working consciously, it's important to understand that there's a spiritual component to growing consciously. And so how do I begin to grow? Well, let's see 
some, some things that you can do to, to extend your growth. Meditation is one of, those, one of those tools. Being able to take quiet time, reflective time on looking at yourself in terms of where you're at and where you fit into a larger picture connecting with others. Prayer time is, an, is, an, is another tool that one uses to build their consciousness. Now, I know that, you know, in this industry that we're in, because we're so fixated on physical development, that we don't, under, we don't incorporate or really fully understand the, the, the importance of having a spiritual component tied to this work that we do as developers. Whether you're in business, whether you're in, 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 in developing buildings, whether you're developing programs, we, we just we dislodged that notion that there's a spiritual connection to the work that we're doing. I say there's a real spiritual connection to all the work that we're doing because all is connected spiritually. And so when you are working in a space of consciousness and you understand the, the work that connects spiritually to the work, then you begin to elevate yourself to a, a high level of awareness. It's not that you're not aware, but you want to extend upward in a higher state of awareness and understand that for every action, there is a reaction. So when you're working, as in your earlier example about the Koch brothers, when you are working to dismantle and disrupt people's pathway, then you're putting a negative energy out there, and that negative energy can grow just like positive energy. But I would argue is that energy working to the best it can work to helping others to grow and to extend. And so when I do do my my work, I'm always looking at the, the outwardness, the external, in terms of how is it affecting others? Is it helping others to move along a, a, a better road of prosperity? And so when I was making the earlier comment about the low-income housing tax credit program, it's just embedded in that. Is it moving communities along the pathway of their highest goal of obtaining prosperity? I would argue no in some, in some, in some respects. And so that's what consciousness is, is about. How are we working to elevate communities and people to the highest level of their prosperity, their prosperous growth and outcomes? And so what we've seen over the years, particularly the last 50 years, is that we've We've done government programs. We've put millions and billions of dollars into many programs, and yet we're not seeing the highest outcome in terms of growth and, and prosperity in those communities. So it takes us back to rethink about what are we doing? What are we missing? What, what is the missing element that, that the dollars can't, can't do? And it really is bringing people along along the spiritual journey. And that was one of the things Dr. King understood about the civil rights movement. He couldn't move that movement without having some spiritual context embedded in the work that he was doing. He understood that clearly. And he used that as a motivator, as an a, a engagement tool to bring people into the movement. Because he spoke to the high evolution of all of us as people in terms of how we could collectively look at self as being a oneness around who we are. Going back to the old scripture, I am my brother's keeper. And he practiced that spiritual principle that we can't succeed until we bring everybody along. And so when I talk consciousness and I talk 
about bringing communities along, elevating communities. That's what I'm talking about. Not leaving anyone behind. Bringing everyone along. Helping them get to their highest level of growth and prosperity. So I would argue, I think similar to you, that most of the millions and billions of dollars that the U.S. has put into the black community supposedly to enhance, whether that's food stamps or this tax credit, it sort of keeps us eating. It may keep us alive, but it definitely does not elevate us. Matter of fact, in some ways, I think it keeps us down, uh, pulls us down. It takes away the, the food stamp program I saw in my family, how it took away people's drive, their ambition, their enthusiasm, growth, and began to rely on demand for food and not the spark plug of going out and getting it themselves. So, yeah, I would, too often it made somebody wealthy, but it wasn't us. Okay, and, yeah, I get that. As many times as we've talked, I've not gotten this before. And I I haven't heard anybody talk about the spiritual side of growth, the meditation, the prayer. And I want to put something else in here, the the, the part about the co-op experience that I like. uh, Or it's a lot of parts about it, but I really like is the ethical principles. And we talk about values. uh, It's the ethical values of honesty, openness, social responsibility and caring for each other, the golden rule, that when I am, I am my brother's keeper. And so that's one of the things I like about it, and it is also ownership and the things that you've been talking about. And uh, Dane Pauline Green, who was the president of the International Cooperative Alliance, said it helps people come out of poverty with dignity, that self-worth, that self-growth. And coming out of poverty is that I have the money to fix the car when it needs a tune-up. That's the coming out of pocket. Yeah. So, yeah, I, that's the part of co-op I really, really like. Okay, so I have it. I hope people out there understand the consciousness that you're talking about in creating conscious communities. I do want to just add one point to this. Okay. And I don't want to leave out this really important thought about intention. When you talk about the food stamp program and other programs, what were the initial intentions of those programs? Were they intended to to elevate folks to a high level of, of, of self-awareness, a high level of, of being, or were they intended to misguide folks down a different pathway? You know, it's, it's like it's, it's, it's similar to what we do as a country where we do our work working with other countries in terms of giving foreign aid. Is our aid going to, 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 to empower and to, to help countries grow? Or we're using our aid to, again, bring countries into servitude. And that was, again, going back to what Dr. King had shared. And and he recognized that, that we weren't using our power as a nation to to really bring uh, economic parity and wealth around the world. We were using our, our power as a nation to subjugate other countries. And so even looking locally and nationally, are we using our resources to empower communities, to grow communities, or are we using our resources, again, to subjugate communities, to servitude, to being impoverished? And so we can talk about, you know, where we are today versus where we were 50 years ago, and we still see the similarities around the disparities. 
As a matter of fact, I would argue, and, and the statistics hold true, that our disparities have widened. The wealth gap has widened. Prosperity in, in, in among uh, black communities has, has decreased. Health disparities have, have widened. And so are and we... Ron- Ron, that's a good place to to stop to go to our second break because I really want to come back and talk about this disparities and how the gap has gotten much bigger between the white wealth and the black wealth and income and health and everything that you're talking about, education. But we'll be right back. We're talking to Ron Hans, and we'll get to that one right after the other side of this break. Please stay with us. Your news talk station. Hello, this is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. We're glad you're back with us. We have Mr. Ron Hentz on the line with us this morning, this beautiful Thanksgiving day that we have so much to be grateful for. The National Co-op Bank is a sponsor of this program. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members especially in low-income communities, and that's ours, black communities, brown communities, Native American communities. They do this by providing innovative financial and related services, and they've done a great job, and they've been our sponsor for the last 12 years. So, Ron, the disparities we were talking about, right before we took break, we were talking about disparities, and I, I, I want to give you one, and talking to the Federation of Southern Co-ops, um, the folks down there in the 13 southern states, they've made me really aware that in the turn of the century, the 19, in 1910, black farmers owned 30 million acres of land. I had no idea it was that great. Today, it's about two and a half million acres. Okay. So from a land standpoint, in, in the turn in the 19, 1910, 1920s, we owned all of this land, and today, for a whole bunch of reasons, a lot of it is racism and, and, and policies put in place by the government, laws put in place, local governments, federal governments, to take this land from black folk and to make it hard for us. So let's talk about some of those disparities that, that right before break we said we're going to come back and we're going to talk about them, which is the first one you want to talk about. Well, let's talk about the economic disparities. Uh, Vernon, I mean, because this this pandemic uh, certainly has has exposed um, all the economic disparities that that could that have been existing in this country for a long time. The wealth divide in this country is a has been responsible for a lot of these disparities that we're, we're seeing, and the wealth disparities didn't come about by accident, but by systematic policies on the behalf of government to keep communities of color uh, within certain economic status. Part of that has been the, the, the policies around housing and home ownership, redlining policy, policies that prohibited it and restricted FHA from insuring um, loans for people of color and redlining that went on throughout this country um, that was adopted as a national policy by local jurisdictions. And so one of the things we do know that home ownership does give a pathway towards creating wealth. 
And so we still are, are vested right now in, in trying to increase home ownership in the black community, which is around, again, I think around 40 to 42%, and white home ownership is, is roughly around 65% in this country. And we know that, you know, leveraging the equity in your home allows you opportunity to provide education opportunities for your your kids. It provides uh, economic opportunity for you to start small businesses. It builds long-term sustainability in terms of retirement income. So that's just in this, just the name of few. So, yeah, so this wealth divide is is a real problem in this country. So let me give you one more stat that fits right on top of that one. The average wealth of a white family in the U.S. is $171,000. Average wealth. And you know there's a lot of people that don't have that kind of wealth in a white community. So there's a, there's, there's a number of folks that are extremely wealthy, the billionaires, millionaires, and billionaires in the white community. But the average wealth of a black family is 17000 one-tenth of that of the white folk. So that you're saying 40% black ownership of, of housing versus 60% for white. And you, you go down and you drill it down to how much wealth. That is, how much is owed, owned, how much is owned versus how much is owed. So black folks own $17,000 more on average than what they owe, where a white family owns $171,000 more than what they owe. If you go one step further, brother, if it's a single head of household, a black woman, single head of household, has a negative $6 wealth. That is that she owes $6 more than what she owns on average. So then a negative standpoint from starting. So they can't fix the car. They can't fix the house. They cannot pay for college education because they owe more already than what they own. They don't have this thing. Okay, keep going, man. That's well, the well, rest of the parity. Those statistics uh, bear out what our earlier conversation around optimum, being able to operate at your optimum level. And you can't operate at your optimum level of prosperity when you have all of the, the tip of uh, those, those factors stressing and, and, and on you on a daily basis. And so one of the things I, I, I think that uh, um, i like to see more of in this industry that you and I work in, around community development, is white organizations who are working in communities of color having a, a, a agenda around building black wealth. Um, not coming in extracting wealth out of black communities in terms of the, the type of programs and projects they do, but really working in, in, in partnership with, with black community, community-based organizations and helping to build wealth. This issue of wealth can be compared to what the boys said in the turn of the century. It's the question of the, of the next decade, the next century. How are we bringing folks along in terms of being able to, to, to give access to wealth that creates the pathway for education, a pathway for good health, a pathway for good food access? We have to be able to address this long-standing systemic problem of the wealth divide. And until we are able to do that, in concert, working with partners and collaborators, we're going to find ourselves, um, as Charles Dickens wrote, the tale of two cities, the tale of two neighborhoods, the tale
tale of, 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 of different states. We have to really figure this out and be consciously aware that everything that we do has to, has to and should go down this pathway of creating wider and broader opportunities for everyone. So what you're talking about, and I, I want to say what you're preaching about, bro, is what um, Reverend Barber and Theo Harris have been talking about in the Poor People's Campaign, which, yes. which is a takeoff of Martin Luther King's Poor People Campaign, Jobs and Justice. That that money is a huge piece of it. Get get the kind of jobs, and they're talking about jobs. I like to talk about ownership of businesses. You get create your own jobs by owning your own business. Yes, um, that that's what they've been talking about. And I want to add one more thing here too to to these stats, because I grew up in West Virginia, and the, the neighborhood I grew up in were black and white, and we were all working poor. It didn't make any difference. And I've got the poverty. It doesn't. It doesn't care like the coronavirus. It doesn't care about your race. It doesn't care about your gender. It doesn't care about much of anything except keeping you down. And 50%, uh, 47% of Americans don't have $400 if they have an emergency. It's another stat. And that's black, white, or brown. The thing, though, is you just have as a percentage more brown and black people poor than you have white. But in rare numbers, you have more white people that are poor than blacks. And that's what I don't get, that sometimes they'll be voting for people that are not going to do them any good. As a matter of fact, they've shown their, by their voting patterns they vote for things like getting rid of Obamacare that hurts them. So it hurts. Poverty is, is everybody. Black, white, it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. So how are we going to do this for, and our focus is the black community because we've been harmed. That's why we had three times more deaths in the coronavirus. And if you look at our communities, when we get wealth created, whites will come in and destroy it, like in Tulsa and other places. So how do we how do we consciously, I like it, bro, how do we consciously go about creating wealth, whether it's black folks or white people that come in, that that's a big piece of it. So you have any other stats before we get into the, well, what do we well, do? You, you named a few, you know, and um, we know that 25% of um, those employed in service industry jobs, the those essential workers are people of color. Um, and so, you know, we, we have to recognize that they're the ones who, who've been definitely on the front line of being impacted by this, this pandemic and being exposed to it. You know, right now that, you know, statistically we're talking about unemployment in the black communities around 18%. That's what they say statistically. It may be higher uh, because a lot of, of uh, individuals, as you all know, don't, don't, don't report to these data collection uh, agencies when they're out there surveying the populace. Um, oh, well, the other thing is they, they stop looking for jobs. They lose they hope. Looking, they went right. to they, they went to 10, 15 different jobs and nobody's giving a job, so they stop looking, and so they're not counted. They're only this yeah. 18% is only those people that are actively looking for jobs right now. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. But you, but, you, but you raise a very serious point, Vernon, around those who vote in their, not in their best interest. 55% of white women voted for Donald Trump. Now, what does that say about that 55%? And you can segment out the data to look at somebody have voted because of his stance around abortion rights. Um, somebody have voted uh, around other uh, uh, issues. But the aggregate number is 55% of white women 
voted for Donald Trump. And when you look at the, 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 the really aggregate popular vote, over 65 million people in this country. And that's the number we got to be able to look at and, and look at going forward over these next four years of the Biden-Harris administration is how do we start to, to bring that 65% into another way of thinking around how they see themselves as, as participatory in this process of change as we grow nationally going forward? Because now we know that we're, we're, we are a, a divided country. There are some who feel the problems of urban America, particularly urban America of people of color, doesn't affect them. And that, that's not a priority on their scope uh, of things to address. But I would argue that it is, based on what I know spiritually and what I practice spiritually. As I said earlier, we have to be able to bring other folks along. I like to see more of of, of my uh, um, um, colleagues and in this industry that we're working, whether it's cooperative work, whether it's community development work, look at having a, a wealth agenda as a part of their mission when they're working with or working in communities of color, and that's supporting programs that continue to perpetuate poverty in a, in a wealth divide. So Reverend Barber is, is, is hitting hitting all these cylinders, man. He's hitting all these cylinders around his discussion around the Poor People's Campaign. Dr. King was hitting it, and other folks have have, have heightened that as well. But I like what you said, too, about ownership. We have to really look at, you know, ownership and what kind of ownership is going on in grassroots communities. Not so much suburbia communities, but the, the grassroots urban communities in terms of ownership. We lost over 440,000 small businesses during this pandemic. Yep, and the 2020, 2007, 2008, we lost a lot of wealth in terms of losing houses. We've lost businesses. We've lost jobs. Listen, we're going to take our final break here. It's already gone by real quicker, but I love this conversation. When we come back, I, I, we've laid out the consciousness, the spirituality, and we've laid out the, the disparities, uh, ownership and wealth and education and housing. When we come back, let's talk about what are some of the kinds of things that you see that we can do to overcome this. We'll be right back, everybody. Everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and we have on line because this morning, this wonderful Thanksgiving morning, the sun is up now. We have Mr. Ron Hans. Uh, we've talked about the spirituality of developing community, developing a conscious method, a way of looking at development so that people and communities are enhanced. And we're talking mainly right now about the enhancement of wealth because with the enhancement of wealth, you get all of these other things like good health, good food, good education, good housing. Uh, but how do we create health? And we can create housing and uh, wealth in a number of ways. And so that's what we're going to talk about now is how do we reverse the trends 
of blacks only having $17,000 of wealth in the families versus $171,000 for white folks. And we were talking that 72 million people voted for Donald Trump. Uh, Joe Biden beat by 5 million, so that's about 75 million voted for Biden. But you have all of these people vote, so we're very much divided. But how do we get a plan that helps not only blacks and browns, but the poor white folks? And this is what Dr. Barber has been talking about. So, Ron, what what are some things that we can do as a community? I'm particularly, what can black folks do to help create this plan? We got Biden elected, and he says he knows it. What can we do to help create plans, conscious way, spiritual way, to to help us raise ourselves up? Yeah, I think one of the things we need to do is get more engaged. You know, we, we've afforded a lot of opportunities over through the years, and this day is a day of, of gratitude. And so we have much to be thankful for as you open the show today. And so with that attitude of gratitude, we got to really turn the pendulum around. As, as folks. And so we got to do some more institutional building in black communities. We know that uh, many of our communities, particularly our grassroots communities, don't have buffers, institutional buffers to do the work. And so that's going to be very important going forward, that we start to create more institutions in our community that can deal with the health and wealth issues that we're ch- being challenged by. And so coming up with a, a comprehensive Development plan, I call it a black community development plan, is going to be essential to this whole process. Similar to what we did as a country after World War II when we created the Marshall Plan and that rebuilt Europe. We're going to have to have a, a, a concentrated plan to rebuild and black America, and not only black, black America, but black indigenous people of color America. And that doesn't mean that we exclude building white America as well. No, we don't exclude that. But there has to be a comprehensive plan around to address institutional building and bringing the needed resources into communities that can foster growth, redevelopment in those communities. You know, people are operating on a very low vibrational level in in communities of color because of the hopelessness that has permeated our community because we continually have relied on government to to do the right thing, and government has always seemingly has turned its back on us. I, I'm reminded of, of Doc Rivers' comment during this year when he talked about black folks loving America and America not loving us back. America got to love us back. And loving us back means that you got to show up. You know, as they say back in the day, put some grease into the game. Put some grease into the game. And so I'm hoping that, you know, this Biden and, and Harris administration understands that and that we can shift the, the, the political and, and the political realms around what is needed to really build sustainable communities. Corporate America has made, you know, $35 billion of pledges to support racial equality. Well, I... Wait a minute, can you, I'm, I'm sorry, let me say that again. Corporate America has done what? Yes, corporate America has, has pledged $35 billion since March. And since the George Floyd murder, they pledged $35 billion to support what they call racial equality. Well, I like to say we need racial equity as opposed to racial equality. And so I like to see them be very strategic about those investments that they are pledging to come into uh, black and brown communities. 
they open up the door for us to help guide their thinking around what is the best use of those resources that could really serve a high good, a high conscious good in terms of developing prosperous, sustainable, growing communities. And not just come in and, and see dollars that go out and we see still not the changes that we want to see happen or that could happen as a result of this potential opportunity. Well, do you see what vehicle or vehicles will cause that to happen where this, this money will stay in the community and not be extracted out? And, and, and what I'm getting to, Ron, is that uh, for those out there that haven't had economic classes, I took an economic class, and they talk about the multiplier, the multiplier of how many times the money will stay in a community. And for white communities, it would stay in there five to eight times. That meant that when somebody went out and got got some money, working or how, working, they brought in, and then they would go to the store in their community, that people in that store would go to the cleaners in that community and then go maybe buy the car in that community, and that money would stay in that community and turn five to eight times. But in the black community, more often, it, it, if there was money made, the person may have spent the money. They went and got their check at, the, at, at wherever they worked, and that's outside the community, and they may have spent it on the way home. It never even, you know, turned one time at best in the community. And so you don't create this wealth because the money doesn't turn. It's extracted out of the community. That's the term you're, you're using, extracted out. What are some kinds of ways that get, we can do to keep that money turning in the community? Well, Brennan, thank you for bringing that up because it's, it's six hours. That's how long a dollar stays in the black community, six hours. Because there is, oh there, there's little or no ownership of small businesses in, 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 in many of the, the urban uh, communities that, uh, that I visit. Um, but I think what I'm, what I'm suggesting is that community grassroots organizations who are working on the ground, working in the central communities, working in those communities that I see as, as the first responder communities, need to, to, to come together to, to – to form um, a, 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 a response to corporate America's $35 billion pledge. Because I think that the corporations, you know, in all their their um, righteousness are looking to do the right thing, but I think they need to be guided along that pathway. I think that, you know, one of the things that we've been having discussions with groups around the country is that how can we help frame a new discussion about how those resources should be deployed? Now, we talk about, you know, small business, but we know that we can't go back to pre-corona and do small business in black communities the same way that we need to do it going forward. But if they are allocating their dollars to, to, to look at black businesses as they did previously, as opposed to looking at new paradigms of doing business, then we probably will find ourselves in, this, in the same uh, petra that we're in now. So... You know, thank you for having this show, Everything Co-op, because I think the cooperative model is a is a model that has been underutilized in, in communities of color. And so we've been strongly advocating through the work that we've been doing locally the importance of developing cooperative-owned businesses, cooperative-owned residential housing. And so I think that um, over the next couple of weeks, as we continue to, to have discussions with groups locally and, and nationally, we want to frame a response to those corporations that have pledged this $35 billion to say, let's look at it a little differently. Let's make sure that we be impactful with the dollars that you are, that you are pledging. 
that we can create the, the best outcome. Because I, I go back to this word optimum. We have to get to the optimum use and delivery. Sir, I totally agree with you. We're almost out of time because you just hit what we got to come back and talk about again. But in New York, they they put like two and a half million dollars a year to create worker co-ops. St. Madison, Wisconsin is a million dollars a year for five years to create these worker co-ops. That's where the individuals, these black folks in these communities own the business. They create the wealth. And we've really got to get HUD to where they're creating housing co-ops, um, the uh, co-op daycare centers, because daycare is the number one reason that women head of households can't go to work. And if they own the daycare, if the women own the daycare, then they can put their kids there. There's so many ways. Yeah, Brian, thank you, man. It's a well, great thank conversation. You, thank you. Brandon, I, I really appreciate the work that you've been doing and echoing out. So what do you want to leave people with? What's your, well, 30 seconds. Well, visit our website, ndccnetwork.org. As I said earlier, we're pulling together a, a, a national conversation around uh, the response to corporate uh, pledges and how we can best utilize those pledges to, to build more sustainable, healthy, and prosperous communities of color. We certainly want to hear your voice. And um, feel free, again, to, to visit our website. We'll be putting out newsletters and, 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 and invites over the next several weeks leading okay, into the year. Thank you very much, Ron. It's great. NDCCnetwork.org. Everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. Enjoy your Thanksgiving. Please stay socially distanced. Uh, get on Zoom or call your family members, but don't go visit. And please live cooperatively, and we'll see you next Thursday.